I've uh, changed the title uh, of the presentation. I know it's supposed to be initially on this idea of the wave of sectarianism, uh, but I, this is what I, I did last year. I think I was somewhere, I believe I was somewhere in the US when I, had, I did it via Skype because I, you know, I was traveling. Uh, so it's nice to be physically here with people and you know, have that uh, humanly interaction. Uh, but I thought that uh, you know, what is interesting, uh, what has changed since then, of course, is that you have had the Indonesian uh, presidential election. Uh, you have, we also have a longer view of sorts uh, with regards to what's happening in uh, Malaysian politics. And uh, you know, uh, I thought that it would be interesting to look at this topic of the new spectrum of Islamism in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia. Obviously, uh, the ideas itself is, is um, you know, the notion of Islamism, uh, the connections between Middle East and uh, Southeast Asian Islam uh, would obviously have an impact in terms of how uh, political Islam or Islamism is represented uh, within the Southeast Asian context, uh, and which is why we, I, I suppose, we are having this session at the Middle East Institute. Now, let me first um, begin by defining what I mean by Islamism. You. If you're going to Google this term, you're probably going to have uh, at least at least a hundred different uh, definitions. So I'm just going to uh, you know use a definition that I personally find uh, useful. Uh, so this is uh, that by a scholar Salwa Ismail. Some of you might be familiar with her work. She's looked at the uh, context of political Islam in Egypt and Algeria, uh, and she's argued essentially that Islamism is an ideology that thinks of Islam. Uh, as a system encompassing political, economic and social systems, uh, which seeks to bring about political transformation of society uh, and state. Uh, and the key objective often of Islamism, um, or Islamists rather, is the implementation, implementation of Islamic law and the framing of uh, economic activities in Islamic terms. Now, uh, what is uh, often Islamism is associated uh, with perceived notion of piety, uh, so, for example, your five basic rituals that uh, you know of Islam, praying five times a day, uh, the fast during the month of Ramadan, and, and so on, uh, dietary habits, uh, dressing, and, and so on. Uh, but often, this is secondary to political transformation. Uh, for some of you guys who, who are more familiar with my work, I did uh, wrote my PhD thesis on a group called Hizb Tahrir, which is uh, which has chapters in about 51 countries. This is the predecessor of ISIS. A uh, bunch of uh, bourgeois who wanted uh, to revive the Islamic, uh, the historical uh, caliphate, uh, but believe in a non-violent approach uh, to achieving uh, achieving that goal. Uh, and through my interactions with members of Hizbut Tahrir, um, you know, in in Europe, in the Middle East, and uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, this idea of the secondary nature of piety comes out very clearly. Uh, you might not have the most pious uh, people who are members of Hizbut Tahrir, uh, but the focus on politics is very strong. Examples of this, for instance, is if they are having a conference or a seminar, uh, they would rather, uh, they would, um, and, and let's say there is a call to prayer, they would not stop uh, to go and pray. They would continue with uh, their activities because that seemed to be a more important um, you know, uh, objective than to pray immediately, right? Uh, so th this is uh, basically how uh, I define this. Now, in terms of some of the dominant uh, paradigms, uh, with specifically in the context of Malaysia and Indonesia, how we have understood uh, Islam. Uh, Islam has historically, in the context of Southeast Asia, uh, been deemed to be moderate, uh, tolerant, Traditionalists, right? Uh, so uh, sometimes we, we we see that the word Sufi, Sufism, Sufi-oriented, uh, is is being used to describe uh, Islam in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia. 
Uh, at the same time, um, during the 1980s especially, the whole uh, Islamic capitalism of sorts uh, or the Muslim uh, uh, you know, ethics, uh, capitalist ethics, ideas that were promoted uh, by people like Dr. Mahathir Mohamed, uh, who's still the Prime Minister of Malaysia after many years, uh, and uh, the late uh, Suharto, who was president of Indonesia. So this notion that Islam is an economically, uh, uh, is, is, you know, uh, uh, religion that is uh, friendly to economic development, capitalism, uh, at the same time, uh, it is uh, pious, uh, encouraging piety within the Muslim community, uh, which is sometimes represented not just by government policies, but also certain organizations, uh, such as in Indonesia, Muhammadiyah and Nahdlatul Ulama. Now, currently, I think there is a debate, and I think uh, some of you guys are engaged in this kind of in, in this debate. You might be writing on this as well, and uh, so I'm, I'm offering my, my little uh, opinion on this, which is that the notion, uh, the argument that has been put forth is that traditionalist Islam today is threatened by this foreign, Middle Eastern, and intolerant. Uh, Islam represented by Salafism. Uh, in the case of Indonesia, the you know groups, the traditionalist groups, have argued that groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and the Hizb Tahrir have threatened the shape of traditionalist Islam. Now, um, I I personally have a different take on this. I think um, one of the arguments that has been put forth sometimes that. Uh, is the notion of the Arabization uh, of Islam in Southeast Asia. Uh, so I, I disagree uh, in particular with, uh, with this notion, and I'll explain uh, why. Now, what I am uh, offering, or what I'm arguing uh, increasingly, is that when we think of Islam in Southeast Asia, when we think of traditionalist Islam that is supposed to be Sufi-oriented, uh, you know, all loving, singing, uh, very relaxed in terms of its uh, practice of, uh, of the rituals and so on, uh, I think we, we are stuck in a particular period, uh, which is no longer true. Uh, so I think that there's a need for us to rethink uh, this notion of what traditional Islam actually means within the context. Is it really this apolitical, uh, Sufi-oriented, peace-loving kind of uh, Islam, uh, you know, as as uh, try as uh, argued by groups like the Nahdlatul Ulama in Indonesia, uh, who have argued that you know they are they are presenting this notion of Islam Nusantara uh, or the uh, Islam of the Malay Malay world. Uh, or in, or in, in the case of Malaysia, under the previous Prime Minister, this notion of wasatiya or moderation. And the current government uh, have uh, argued or promoted this notion of rahmatan lil alamin, which means that Islam uh, for all of humanity or religion for all of, all of humanity. Uh, so to me, these are, you know, there's a need for us to rethink what this, this actually uh, means. Now, uh, conceptually, uh, so this is actually an ongoing uh, work that I'm, I'm working on as a sub-interest, uh, looking at essentially the, um, what we call the reinvention or the, the shift, shifting boundaries of Sunni Islam uh, in Southeast Asia. So I'm, lo I'm looking at this both in the context of Indonesia and Malaysia. Conceptually, we are looking at it from uh, the... Um, uh, looking at uh, boundary theories, uh, boundary making and the remaking of boundaries. Uh, I don't, uh, so, so basically we are looking at identity uh, as uh, intersecting uh, boundaries. Uh, and we distinguish in, in our work, uh, so I'm working on this with a couple of colleagues, uh, between the notion of symbolic and social boundaries. So on one hand, this idea of symbolic by, uh, boundaries represent a conceptual distinction which social actors often employ for categorizing material re reality 
as well as time and space. Uh, fundamental to this, to this imagination, uh, you know, it's a medium for acquiring status and resources, symbolic boundaries uh, on the other, also separate groups and substantiate uh, the feelings of membership and inclusiveness, right? Uh, social boundaries, on the other hand, are objectified forms of social differences and sta stable behavioral patterns of association. So what we're saying essentially is that uh, when we think of these boundaries, is it symbolic or is it social? What is symbolic and what is social is something that we are uh, currently uh, looking at. Now, what are some of the current trends in terms of Muslim uh, political uh, mobilization within the context of uh, Southeast Asia? Now, here uh, I use the word Muslim political mobilization. I don't. I I'm not used the term uh, Islamist uh, political Islam necessarily, and I'll explain why. Uh, so one is that we have seen an upsurge, of course, of identity uh, politics. Uh, this has been employed in the last, uh, the 2018 Malaysian election, the 2019, in fact, the 2014 Indonesian legislative as well as presidential election. Uh, it has been used in earlier in the case of uh, Indonesia in the Jakarta governor uh, election, the West Kalimantan governor elections, and so on. So you have basically politicians who are using the identity card. So here is a photo of uh, Anis Baswedan, um, who is the current uh, governor of Jakarta, and he was very much involved uh, in this. And prior to the, to the elections, prior to um, him running as the governor of Jakarta, he was uh, deemed to be, you know, someone who's very pluralistic, liberal. Uh, he was described as being the Obama of uh, Indonesia. But during the election campaign, he clearly used the identity card, utilized the Muslim card to unite the Muslim vote against his uh, uh, competitor at that point of time, the sitting governor uh, of uh, Jakarta. You also have the burgeoning uh, lobby strength of uh, Islamist groups, uh, groups like the Forum Umat Islam in Indonesia, the Islamic Defenders Front uh, as well. Uh, in the case of Malaysia, under the, the, previous, the, the previous administration, you have a group called ISMA, the Ikatan Muslim in uh, Malaysia, uh, who all were able, these groups were able to essentially lobby, not necessarily in the uh, political, actual political space, but outside uh, the political space, uh, either through interactions uh, with politicians uh, by convincing them that there's a need for certain changes um, in terms of policies, or mobilizing at the level, uh, at the street level, showing uh, a show of strength. So, for example, uh, the anti-Ahok rallies, uh, you know, uh, gathered nearly a million uh, Indonesians. Uh, it was the largest gathering ever done in the name of Islam in the history of uh, Indonesia. Uh, so clearly, there is this uh, move, and that uh, show of strength on the part of groups like this uh, sometimes more often than not, convince politicians that, look, uh, these guys are important, we need to engage them and we need to think about how, uh, you know, we are doing this and, you know, perhaps uh, look at how we can accommodate their, their interests within our own uh, political objective. There's also increasing confluence between circular politicians um, and Islamist uh, figures. So uh, you have, for example, um, in the last uh, presidential election in Indonesia, Prabowo Subianto, who's actually not, uh, who's a well-known uh, figure, who's known not to be a pious Muslim, uh, who, in fact, uh, you know, I, I uh, attended uh, one of the 
meetings where the, this group of Islamists actually uh, vowed to support him and give pledge his uh, pledge support to him, uh, and he basically you know started his speeches by. Uh, you know, doing uh, uh, by saying Bismillah rahman rahim Salaamu Alaikum and things like that, which are basic, um, you know, ways in which you try to uh, posit a more Islamic image. And what is interesting is that he couldn't even pronounce uh, those, you know, he, his pronunciation itself was was rather strange. So it, it was quite obvious that he was awkward in that space. This was not his natural space. But yet, he was, uh, you know, he, he worked with some of these groups, believing that essentially they could help him to win uh, the election. He was wrong, of course, uh, he lost the election. But here is an interesting photo. Uh, this man, uh, Habib Rizik, who's the uh, current, um, you know, he's the spiritual leader of the Islamic Defenders Front. He's now in exile, self-imposed ex exile in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they visited him. This, this photo was taken in Saudi Arabia. Uh, here is Prabowo Subianto, and this is uh, another important figure within Indonesian uh, politics, Amin uh, Rais. Amin Rais, in fact, um, you know, was one of the key mobilizers in the reformasi movement in the 1990s that finally brought down uh, you know, General Suharto. Uh, and he was never known to be necessarily uh, an Islamist or a very conservative figure. But yet, uh, you know, when it came to the mobilization that took place, he decided to, uh, you know, uh, be in cahoots with uh, some of these more Islamist groups. Now, another area that I see, I think, increasingly as being, being important is um, what I see as a new arenas of mobilization. So, um, so for example, social media movements. Uh, you know, where you see mobilization uh, taking place. So one very interesting example, I had an article, uh, I, I didn't assign the article, but you can look it up in my, on my profile on the RSIS website. Uh, it's uh, published in a journal called Religion and Political Practice, uh, where me and a colleague uh, looked at uh, what we call new sites of Islamization. So one of the movements, so we argued essentially there's a need for us to look at uh, you know, new, new expressions. So for example, radio stations, how radio stations are utilized, social media movement, uh, and also f uh, uh, films, how films are utilized in the Indonesian context to spread certain ideas, uh, you know, more conservative ideas, or in some cases, more Islamist ideas. Uh, so one such group is a group called the Hijab community. So this is Anis Baswedan with a group uh, of um, you know, members of the hijabers community. It's a social media group. Uh, basically what it is, is a fashion, uh, it's a Muslim fashion uh, social media group. It has hundreds of thousands, I think millions probably now, uh, of followers. So uh, these ladies, young ladies, very good looking and more, you know, uh, and so on, uh, posting themselves in Islamic uh, attire, uh, you know, giving fashion tips on how to dress Islamically, but yet be fashionable and, and whatnot. But what is interesting is how uh, they express themselves politically, right? Uh, so when it came to the politics of things, you find that they would be, uh, you know, they would support Anis Baswedan, they would support Prabowo Subianto, uh, and more, and, and this is part, I think, of how they assume, uh, you know, that Muslim identity. So I think this is interesting and important because, there is, you know, we, we are often looking at the political sides of, side of things without necessarily understanding perhaps the more cultural or social dimensions uh, of this process that's taking uh, place. Now, uh, so I'm going to now move on to uh, look at specific examples of uh, this mobilization that I cited. Uh, so here is the example of the street mobilization against the, uh, the governor of uh, Jakarta, Ahok. 
so he allegedly uh, made certain remarks uh, against uh, uh, Islam. I mean, he uh, basically quoted a verse of the Quran. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was deemed, that it, he, it was portrayed as if he made fun of the verse, right? Uh, it was a verse basically saying you cannot choose uh, your leaders amongst uh, the, the non-Muslims. Now, um, he didn't quite, uh, you know, his, he, he, the, the actual uh, statement was actually misconstrued. In fact, what uh, happened was that they altered the video itself and what he said. So it was a fake video that was spread. Uh, but it was made to be that essentially, look, uh, you know, this guy has made all these insulting remarks against Islam and we need to come out, you know, to, uh, to uh, rally against him. Now, the one other organisation, uh, the, uh, uh, the Majlis Ulama Indonesia, MUI, came out with a fatwa. And a fatwa, by the way, uh, is not the word of God. A fatwa is simply, simply an Islamic opinion of a cleric. It is not religiously binding. So it's just an opinion of the Majlis uh, Ulama Indonesia. Uh, and the, the uh, by the way, the head of the Majlis Ulama Indonesia is the current uh, vice president of Indonesia. Uh, you know, uh, and, and he basically came out with a fatwa saying that this guy has insulted Islam. Uh, and so as a result of that, uh, you know, the groups like the FBI, the FU, uh, FUI and so on uh, were able to galvanize uh, large numbers of people on the streets. Now, Ahok himself, prior to the mobilization, his approval rating stood at above 60%, I think it was 65% if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but yet he lost the election, right? Uh, so this mobilization was very uh, successful. It was useful, it was effective. Uh, and I think, of course, there are numerous reasons to why uh, this, this happened, why they were able to mobilize so many people. Now, uh, I think one explanation, of course, is that there has been a conservative turn in Indonesian Islam, that there has been, you know, Islamism uh, or the influence of Islamists have increased. That's one opinion. But there were a multitude of different reasons as to why people came out. So, for example, uh, many, many of the Chinese businessmen themselves uh, in Indonesia supported the anti-Ahok rally because they were unhappy with certain policies of Ahok. Uh, one of the groups um, that uh, is actually very apolitical, they are proper Sufi, very traditional is the Majlis Cinta, uh, Majlis Rasulullah. Uh, they are apolitical generally, but they decided um, to come out. And in fact, they, they, are, they are followers of uh, Habib uh, Umar bin Abdul. Bin Hafiz, Habib Umar bin Hafiz, who is based in Tarim in, in Yemen, uh, they seek the permission of Habib Umar whether they could actually, uh, you know, join the rally. And uh, Habib Umar said, no, you can't join a rally like this because it's un-Islamic. But if they are going to do a maulid, uh, basically a big uh, zikir, uh, uh, which is a practice of supplication, uh, you know, where you say certain verses of the Quran, then that's okay. So what they did, uh, all these groups decided to have a massive zikir session. All right, and so they, they joined because Habib Umar say it's fine to, to do that. And here you can see the dimensions of uh, the Middle East coming in. Now, uh, why was it that they were, they were unhappy? A very simple reason. For every year, they have a few hundred thousand people. Every year, they have a particular celebration during the Prophet's uh, birthday. Uh, so they had it at a place called Monas, which, has, which can obviously accommodate a few hundred thousand people. Uh, and Ahok basically prevented them from doing it. They've been doing it for years. But when Ahok became governor, he prevented them saying, this is a circular space, you can't do your Islamic uh, events here. And this is very harmless. The event itself 
is about, again, about promoting peace and, and so on. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, Ahok prevented them from doing it. So they came out not because they support Islamism, but because they were, you know, Ahok attacked them, right? Uh, unnecessarily from their perspective. Now, so what happened then? Uh, of course, he lost the election. Uh, subsequently, he was jailed as well. Uh, and that uh, movement, uh, uh, you know, uh, because of the success of that movement, this group uh, then formed a, a network called the 212. 2nd of December was when uh, they held the, the event itself. They held the, the uh, protest or the rally. They call themselves the 212 Alumni Movement, and then they started mobilizing in different elections. They had another victory in West Kalimantan, uh, where traditionally you have two main groups of people, the Dayaks and uh, the Malays. Uh, and the Dayaks, you have the Christian Dayaks and the Muslim Dayaks. Generally, the Dayaks voted in previous election, uh, you know, along ethnic lines. But in this particular election, uh, they were able to mobilize the Muslim Dayaks to vote for the, can the Muslim candidate at that point of time. So it was the first time where you actually had a rupturing of the Dayak uh, vote, where Muslim Dayaks and uh, Malays came together to vote uh, for the Muslim candidate. So that was another success. Now, the presidential election came in, uh, and of course, they lost that election, and it was seen to be a bit of a... Uh, you know, uh, they, they, they were slightly de demoralized. But I think what is interesting to note is that in the next election, they actually have a candidate now. This is, and they have already uh, spoken very openly about it, which is uh, they want to support the current governor of Jakarta, uh, Anis Baswedan, as the next president of Indonesia. And I think if uh, Jokowi uh, and, you know, some of the PDIP and others, uh, they cannot marshal... Um, a suitable candidate, a strong candidate, I think there's a very good chance that Anis Baswedan could win uh, the next election. Now, another dimension, uh, another example, and this is uh, uh, something else in terms of uh, the expression of this new spectrum of Islamism, is this trend called the Safari Da'wah in Indonesia. What is the Safari Da'wah? Uh, it is basically attempts to try uh, at converting uh, uh, indigenous uh, groups to Islam, all right? And this is happening throughout uh, Indonesia. There are numerous reasons as to why uh, this happened. Um, I uh, went to a particular uh, area in Jambi, uh, in Sumatra, uh, where there's a group called a Suku Anak Dalam. Uh, and what uh, got me interested in this, why I went to Jambi, was because uh, I saw, uh, well, I, I met this man, uh, I know him fairly well, uh, uh, Sobri Lubis, who's the current leader of the FBI, so I, every time I go to Indonesia, I try to meet him, he's a good, good resource for me. Uh, so Sabri Lubis uh, basically declared that, uh, just mentioned in the passing, oh, we were, I uh, just came back from converting a bunch of people, right? So, uh, and I was like, okay, who are these people? And then I got, uh, you know, interested in it. So I went and I, I found out what they were doing. Essentially, um, they, uh, the FBI led this conversion process. So I went uh, to find out why people converted and so on. And what was interesting is that um, I met the uh, mayor of Jambi, the head of Jambi's Legislative Assembly, and others. Um, and of course, the reason why many of them converted has to do with uh, the fact that they wanted uh, what is known as the KPK card, which is the identity card. And uh, you need to have a religion in before they can uh, uh, you know, uh, issue you a card. So th there were practical reasons as to why people converted. But... The mayor of Jambi is from Golka, which is a circular nationalist party, uh, and the head of the Legislative Assembly is from the Party Democrat, another circular nationalist party. And both of them, when you go to their office, there's a big picture of them with Habib Rizik, the leader of FBI. Uh, and uh, they basically gave the FBI the space 
to basically conduct the conversion process. And in fact, the conversion process, process itself took place uh, in, at, um, in an, uh, sort of an open area uh, right in front of the, uh, the office of the mayor of Jambi, right? which tells you a lot about the kind of access that groups like. And this is what I mean by the galvanization uh, process that is occurring outside of the political system. You don't need to be voted into parliament, you don't need to be voted into the provincial assembly to necessarily uh, gain uh, access, right? Uh, so the assistance of FPI played a crucial role, of course, in the conversion process. Um, and that, uh, you know, is not the only place where Jambi is just one example of this conversion process. It's happening in many other parts uh, of uh, Indonesia and often groups like the FPI uh, has been given access. Why? Because they believe that the FPI can assist them at the political level. By aligning themselves with FPI, uh, it, is, it's, it is assisting them to secure more political support. So there's a very practical reason. Now, there are other reasons. They actually believe in the cause in many cases. Uh, many of them, uh, these two individuals, for example, are very pious Muslim. You can see quite clearly the way they speak, the way they express themselves, and, and so on. Uh, so this is another example uh, that I wanted uh, to cite. Now let's now move on to Malaysia, where we had, um, you know, uh, the the difference I think between Indonesia and Malaysia is that at in Malaysia, in uh, Malaysia uh, the Islamic Party you have an Islamic Party which has remained overtly Islamist in their orientation. Now what do I mean by this? Uh, the Islamic Party in Malaysia has not ceased. Uh, you know, in their uh, objective to try to implement Islamic criminal law. And this is really interesting because if you look uh, worldwide, you look at the Middle East in particular, uh, this is not necessarily the trend. People have moved away from the trend of supporting the implementation of Islamic criminal law. A lot of Islamist parties have basically uh, renounced uh, Islamism or the Islamist objectives at least. So the Anahda in Tunisia, for example, has declared itself to be a secular party that it has dichotomized or it has... Um, uh, separated its political role vis-a-vis uh, -vis its uh, role as an Islamic social movement in terms of their, what they call uh, da'wah and, and things like that. Uh, but yet in Malaysia, uh, this continues to uh, be an important factor. Now in the last election, uh, what is unique about PAS, everyone sort of dismissed PAS as being a non-entity. Everyone thought PAS was not going to even win one parliamentary seat. They were wrong. Uh, PAS won 18 parliamentary seats and uh, won the state of go uh, governments of Terengganu, Kelantan, uh, and had a good showing in Kedah and, and Pahang as well. Now, uh, and what I think is important is that PAS was the only party that went into the election without any alliance, meaning they, they didn't have any sort of alliance with any other political party. Uh, which to a certain extent uh, tells you its actual strength. Now, with regards to the, the other political parties, it's highly dependent. Uh, you, they cannot claim that, okay, this is our level of support because they come together, uh, they are, you are bringing together a level of support from different political outfits. But in the case of PAS, we know that this is what PAS uh, has. And it's about, 14, uh, it's about 15 to 16% of the overall popular votes. Now, um, PAS tapped on uh, NY because PAS was able to tap on the network of uh, Malaysian religious scholars. And, um, you know, they, they have been uh, building institutions. So, for example, the largest childcare uh, and kindergarten providers uh, in uh, Malaysia is uh, an organization called PASTI. PASTI comes under uh, the 
Yeah, it comes under the past youth wing. The past youth wing basically controls uh, PASTI, which again, uh, from that network alone, I think they have 150,000 students attending uh, you know, their kindergartens and childcare. That translates to about 300,000 parents who are voters. All right? uh, I'm particularly interested uh, to look at the long term. So I've got a theory that you know, PASTI is an important conduit in terms of PASTI's uh, uh, sort of grassroots mobilization. I think it'd be interesting to trace, uh, you know, voting patterns and the existence of pasties. Because if you look at where pasties started, they really started in the northern states. So uh, Kelantan, Terengganu, Kedah, uh, Pahang as well. Uh, Pasti has a large number of uh, uh, kindergartens. And I think it'd be interesting to see whether there is a trend in terms of the, you know, when these institutions were built and how PAS subsequently, subsequently uh, do during uh, the elections. Now, uh, the Islamic civil society space uh, in Malaysia uh, is also one where you begin, we, we are seeing a lot more, uh, especially after the last election where you have a new government that has come in. This government is deemed to be anti-Islam, anti-Malay. Uh, it is deemed to be dominated by the Chinese. Of course, this is, I, I said deemed because it's not true. You still continue to have key positions within, within the government held by, by Muslims. Um, but um, there are numerous groups like the Gerakan Pembela Ummah, uh, for example, which is past link. Uh, many of the leaders of uh, Ummah are past leaders uh, or past supporters at the very least. And they have been able to lobby for policy changes. So, for example, uh, Malaysia wanted to ratify two international uh, conventions, ICERT and the Rome Statute. Uh, and as a result of the mobilization, uh, street mobilization particularly of groups like Ummah and others, uh, they have been able to enact policy changes. They have been prevented the ratification or there's been a U-turn in terms of decisions being made by the current government as a result of this lobbying process and street mobilization that is taking place. They have launched uh, public campaigns, for example, the latest being this campaign to buy Muslim first. Uh, I mean, I think there has been a bit of a misrepresentation of this. Uh, the campaign is not a campaign of against uh, non-Muslim businesses. Uh, so they emphasize very clearly, if you look at it, that uh, you buy Muslim first. If you, you, the Muslim, you cannot find anything that is Muslim-owned, then you go to the non-Muslim, right? So, but the way it has been portrayed is that this is about um, you know, boycotting uh, non-Muslim-owned uh, businesses. There is an element of that, for sure. But I think the, the focus is about uh, building this um, uh, Muslim, um, you know, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, Muslim, to, to uh, ramp up, I think, the Muslim control over uh, the economics and things like that. Now, uh, what does this all uh, tell us? I think that uh, a couple of things uh, that I think is, is uh, important uh, to note. One is that there's a need for us to rethink Islamism. When we think about Islamism uh, in general, we associate Islamism with certain ideas. Now, in particular, that of the Muslim Brotherhood of, uh, of the Middle East, uh, to a lesser extent, the Jamaati Islami uh, in South Asia. Uh, to a lesser extent as well, we have often, uh, you know, conflict, at least in the context of Southeast Asia, Salafism, uh, which is Puritan this puritanical version of Islam coming from Saudi Arabia, with Islamism. And I think that this is not quite the case. Now, when you look at PAS, when you look at FBI, when you look at Forum Omar Islam, none of these organizations are Muslim Brotherhood link. None of these organizations are Salafi. All of them are traditionalist Muslim groups. 
Now, in terms of their Islamic practice, they are traditionalists. They would celebrate, for example, the birthday of the Prophet. They would celebrate, uh, for example, um, uh, Sufi rituals uh, and, and so on. And now, that does not necessarily translate to them being apolitical, being, uh, them being uh, pl pluralistic or embracing uh, progressive ideas. And I think this is important uh, for us uh, to think. Uh, rethink because right now the narrative is this and especially at the policy level I'm in a think tank so I suppose I should talk about some of this from a policy standpoint uh, if we are targeting Salafism uh, and saying that Salafism is bad and in Singapore I think uh, this has been the case uh, Salafis have been banned from coming and so on we might not be necessarily uh, barking on the right tree because it is not, I'm not suggesting that we should, uh, we should uh, constrain Sufis and traditionalists, but I think we need to be a bit more nuanced in terms of how we are thinking about this from a strategic uh, standpoint. The second is the Islamist influence in government. We often are worried when Islamists do well in, in elections. That's like a disaster. When the Islamists do not do well, you're like, okay, good. Uh, you know, the Islamists, they, 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 they are marginalised. Now, I think this is, this is also a problem because... There has been a mainstreaming, I think, of political Islam. Political Islam is no more uh, uh, within, it is not, no more the project uh, of Islamist political parties. You don't need to be in parliament to enact policy changes. You don't need to be in parliament to push for certain agendas. You can remain outside of that space and still do it, either on the streets, at the policy level, civil society space. So there are multitudes of different areas that we're looking at. Uh, street mobilization, I think, increasingly is becoming uh, more important. It's not just in the context of, uh, of Southeast Asia, even in South Asia, in places like Bangladesh and Pakistan, this has been a trend uh, where um, street mobilization of, of Islamic groups uh, to push for certain agendas. Uh, and I think most importantly, the new sites of mobilization right, uh, that we have not looked at. I've given the example of the hijabist community, uh, and then uh, this is... Um, uh, you know, a uh, poster of perhaps the most... Uh, do you know this? Anyone uh, not familiar with this? If you are in Southeast Asia, if you are... Uh, you probably know Ayaya Chinta. It is, the, you know, the... Uh, I think the, the, this movie basically cracked all uh, historical records of uh, movies ever to be made. Now, uh, another movie uh, cracked that record. It's called Ayaya Chinta Second, Volume 2 of the... Now, what is interesting about Ayaya Chinta is that it was based on a novel written by a guy called Habibur Rahman al-Shirazi, uh, who is a member of the Prosperity Justice Party, the PKS, uh, and who studied in Egypt and was very influenced by the ideas of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, when you look at the, and this is in my article, I discussed this, but when you look at certain conceptions or certain ideas that are being promoted in the movie, uh, it is very much in the culture of the Muslim Brotherhood. So, for example, this idea of taru, for example. So, you don't meet, don't, you don't go on a date. So, someone else comes in, uh, a friend comes in between to assist you in linking up to the girl. Uh, the wearing, the attires that you wear, uh, the, the uh, you know, how do you uh, greet each other. And Ayah Chinta has had a massive impact in terms of how it has changed. What Ayah Ajinta did is probably, um, you know, in, in one movie, uh, probably surpassed anything that uh, Indonesian Islamists has, you know, have tried to do in the last 30 years. They were able to, so for example, uh, one uh, of the trends that we, we begin to see in Indonesia is the covering of the face. 
Now, even um, Sovri Lubes uh, said once to me that uh, it's, it's funny because both the, the leader of uh, the FBI and its spiritual leader, their wives are, don't cover their faces, but now our followers, many of them are covering the faces. And he attributes Ayaya Chinta as being, as being uh, responsible for creating that norm. All right. So, and I think this is important because we, again, uh, look at Ayat Chinta as simply a movie. There's no, uh, but when you actually dig deeper, there is a political project uh, of sorts uh, behind it. Habibur Rahman himself, actually, in various interviews, have admitted uh, to it that he wanted to change certain, certain uh, ideas. Now, so in terms of our uh, thinking of uh, rethinking the cat Islamic categories in, in the context of Malaysia, now, I think that um, you know, we, we need to basically uh, think, rethink the boundaries of how we understand traditional Islam. I think there has been a diffusion of traditional Islam where now there are numerous expressions of traditional Islam that has a very strong political uh, expression, uh, has a very strong um, you know, uh, expression of intolerance, for example. And I think this is important to note. Why? On two fronts, uh, for Muslims themselves who are traditionalists, uh, I consider myself more of a traditionalist uh, Muslim. I think there's a need to, uh, you know, to, to draw a line between, between uh, what traditional uh, Islamic... I don't want to be necessarily associated with people uh, like FBI, FUI, and so on. So there is that dimension. But at the same time, at the policy level, we are trying to understand where the problems are, where this intolerance and uh, you know, uh, lack of pluralism has come in. Another dimension, uh, and... I personally uh, have, I mean, we all have our biases. I don't necessarily, uh, I'm not crazy about the ideas of Salafism. Uh, but Salafis, if you ask me, uh, who in the way we have portrayed Salafism, we have often argued that Salafis are the perpetrators of this intolerance. But rather, I think they have been a victim of intolerance in the sense that many of the traditionalist groups uh, that I spoke about are against Salafis. They have called for the banning of Salafis. Salafis in Malaysia, for example, today, uh, really have problems speaking in, in a lot of different mosques. Uh, Salafis have problems, uh, you know, there are fatwas from the Malajas Ulama Indonesia arguing that Salafi ideas are divisive and we need to do something about, about that. Right? So a lot of this intolerance uh, that we are seeing also come from traditional Islam against Salafis and of course against the others like Ahmadiyya, Shiites and, and others. So when we talk about bringing back the local, when we argue essentially uh, you know, to engage the larger discussion on Arabization, I think uh, you know, we need to again be nuanced. What do we mean by Arabization? Because the Arab world is huge. Uh, Moroccan and Algeria. I've been to Morocco and Algeria. Uh, Islam is completely different from that in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and when we think about, uh, if we, we assume here Arabization means there is a, a puritanical dimension uh, of Islam, I, I don't see that to be, to be the case because in places like, like uh, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria to a large extent, uh, Sufism, traditional Islam, uh, in its apolitical, Sufistic way is very, very strong. So I think we need to be nuanced in terms of the usage of, of these terminologies. And the second, again, um, we are assuming here that uh, somehow uh, Southeast Asian Muslims and uh, Southeast Asian Islamist actors do not have agency. They have agency and they themselves can produce uh, certain ideas. And I think there has been this production, local production of certain intolerance that we, we have seen, which is a Southeast Asian version of it. And also local, uh, what do you call it, manifestation uh, of uh, more inclusive and pluralistic uh, Islam that I think we need, we need to, uh, to uh, acknowledge. 
The, the last point I want to make is that, again, when we think uh, largely about Southeast Asian Islam, we are thinking of Southeast Asian Islam as simply uh, uh, being, uh, you know, uh, or Southeast Asian Muslims being consumers of this largest, larger trend, be it the Saudi trend, the Egyptian trend, and so on. I'm arguing that, uh, in fact, if, at least with the case of Malaysian Islam today, Malaysia, uh, Malaysian Islam is an important producer of its version of Islam and is exporting at its version of Islam to many parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, now, if you go to Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, you go to any mosque, you speak to uh, many Muslims, if you know Malay, uh, chances are you would have no, no problems doing research uh, in these countries. Most of the imams, most of the religious scholars have at one point or another studied in Malaysia and they're bringing back with them ideas that are coming out from Malaysia. The same in, in Sumatra, for example, uh, in the Riau Islands, in Singapore. Right? Uh, this Malaysian Islam, to me, is a lot more important than, let's say, the Egyptian, Saudi uh, versions of Islam. It has a lot more uh, impact uh, you know, in terms of how we are understanding. So I'm, I'm, um, you know, I, I, I hope I've confused you even more. Uh, uh, I probably think you guys have become more confused, but I hope that that will uh, generate some discussion. Uh, in the spirit of self, uh, you know, uh, shamelessly promoting myself, or uh, my work, I've got two books that are coming out that uh, discuss some of the ideas that uh, you know we uh, that I've discussed, and in particular this one that is coming. I think we are going to have a book launch at uh, in Singapore on the seventh uh, of November. So it's an edited volume. Uh, we actually had about fourteen researchers on the ground doing the uh, research for two weeks prior to the election. We have chapters looking at places like Kelantan, Terengganu. Uh, Islam, of course, is a major uh, part of the discussion. Uh, so this book is coming out. And I have another book that is coming out towards the end of uh, November. Uh, this is a... Um, uh, edited volume, uh, you know, looking at Pafi's contemporary Islam. So this is a larger discussion uh, on Islam. It's not just specific to Southeast Asia. We have some uh, Southeast Asian-centric uh, papers, but uh, we have, you know, uh, for example, Olivier Roy, who has written a lot on, uh, you know, this idea of post-Islamism, political Islam. He has a chapter in there. Uh, Ibrahim Musa, who has uh, talked a lot about the reformation of, of the Islamic uh, thought, uh, about the Islamic education, and so has a chapter. Uh, and then we have a couple of people who are Southeast Asian experts on Islam uh, writing on this. This should come out. Uh, you can pre-order it already, but it should come out anytime uh, uh, at the end of November.